0: This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Later at Lexington's homeless problem has become even more serious during the pandemic as the city tries to get a handle on the challenge ahead of colder weather. In a few minutes, the city's point person trying to deal with that issue, Polly Ruddick, will be here. But first, Kentucky's brand new education commissioner is joining us. Dr. Jason Glass returned home to his native Kentucky after running schools in Iowa, and a large school system in the Denver area. Commissioner Glass's roots run deep in education. He is a third-generation Kentucky teacher who started his career in hazard. When the Kentucky School Board announced its choice this summer, it made note of his experience in suburban, urban, and rural schools and also made note of his strategic vision. Taking the reins in this pandemic is a historic challenge for anybody, and Commissioner Glass is here to talk with us today about that, and we thank you very much uh, for being with us, Mr. Commissioner.
1: Thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you. How's it feel to be home? It feels great, especially this time of year. You know, the spring and fall are two of the best times of year to be in uh, Kentucky, and we're fortunate to have uh, relocated just in time for the leaves to turn.
0: You know, you've been on the job a couple of weeks now, and you said that uh, that coming home to the Commonwealth was a a major draw for you and a reason that you were interested uh, in the position. What is your initial assessment of where Kentucky schools are broadly uh, in this historic time?
1: Well, I think uh, all of them are struggling in some way to uh, think about their response to COVID-19, how they keep learning going. Uh, in an NTI or remote learning format and how they restore uh, in-person learning experiences. We have uh, districts all across the state that are already back in person. Many more came on uh, this week and and several others are making progress toward that. So I think that uh, working to manage the disruption that COVID-19 brought into schools is really taking up most of the attention of school districts. Uh, and and education practitioners
0: right now Uh, you know so nobody alive has experienced anything uh, like this pandemic it has been a a major challenge as you noted uh, for our schools and they rushed to that online learning uh, in the spring Uh, some uh, as you said are bringing those students back to campus now and some already have cases of COVID-19 and they've had to put students uh, in isolation Talk about this challenge. How do they move forward? And is it going to be uh, some of this uh, two steps forward and a step or two back?
1: Well, I think we should uh, applaud uh, educators, teachers, and, and our schools across the state for how quickly they pivoted to that NTI remote learning this spring. It really was unexpected. And um, while I think everyone would acknowledge that it's it was not a replacement for in-person learning experiences, uh, we should be really proud of the way our school systems responded to that challenge this past spring. Uh, the, the challenge now, um, as we work to restore those in-person experiences, are really to choose among several options, all of which have a significant downside. Remaining in an all remote or an all NTI experience certainly has its downsides and exacerbates the uh, inequities that are present in, in our Commonwealth and in our all across Kentucky. Uh, Moving to an all-in-person system presents risks and concerns as well. And uh, you have to have in place layers of virus mitigation strategies uh, to try and uh, limit or eliminate the spread of the virus or or making your school a vector by which the virus spreads. And then there are hybrids of these uh, where schools try to do some NTI, uh, some in-person and mixtures of that. So we're seeing that all across the state. And predictably, as schools return some in-person experiences, they're having some cases pop up. And I think that's that's, uh, to be expected. And we also then have to manage when those cases come up.
0: You know, much has been made about the social interaction that, uh, that students need uh, with their, their friends and, and certainly their teachers in order to, to learn, but also uh, some of the support that goes on in schools uh, that uh, may, many uh, who are more fortunate may not realize with the meals that are provided, uh, some of the counseling and other uh, school services that are there. What is your hope that schools will do to be sure that those needs continue to be met uh, for as long as this goes on?
1: Well, I think uh, our schools have worked hard to keep those services going. Uh, Food nutrition services were one of the first things that was uh, stood up in the spring that continues even now. So meal distributions have continued, uh, not just to school kids, but the whole community. So we're again seeing how important schools are to communities as as a hub in so many ways. Uh, So those nutrition services have kept going. Uh, We've also seen uh, the restoration of services for some of our most uh, needy students, some of our kids with disabilities, school districts have, have figured out ways to bring those kids in or send people out to their homes or deliver services uh, remotely. So they've worked to keep, keep services going for, for those students. But we all uh, know that the the remote experiences or these limited experiences are not the substitute for the, uh, the in-person experience. And, and so our, our school districts all across the state are working to put that back in place or have put it back in place Mm -hmm. in some form. But they're trying to do so in a way that protects their students, protects their staff members, and and keeps the school from being a way that the virus spreads in the community.
0: Well, another hurdle certainly has been with this remote learning, reports of bad Internet connections. Uh, Some students don't have access to a a Chromebook or other device to uh, uh, take uh, part in their lessons. Uh, Is the state moving fast in, in dealing with access issues like that?
1: I think this is another example of that um, two steps up one step back um, or, or really as I'd like to say every solution you put forward just creates two new problems to manage and uh, so as we shifted toward uh, mass remote or NTI experiences students learning through the computer having a device and then having access to the internet became the next two big problems that had to be solved uh, for the most part uh, I, I think Schools in Kentucky have done a really good job getting devices out to students. And Kentucky's for decades been a national leader in internet connectivity at school. Uh, The next step that we're working on now is making sure that all those students also have access at home or in their community. So that can happen through uh, places in the community where students can pull up in a car or go inside and socially distance and access. It could involve low cost or no cost internet service at their home uh, or using uh, uh, devices, hotspot devices, uh, wireless capable devices in order to bring that internet uh, service in. We're really down to a very small number of students in the state who don't have access, but they are the very most difficult to reach and the most expensive to provide service to
0: you know you're the commissioner of education you oversee the uh, the the schools the governor uh, also and the uh, department of public health are giving guidance uh, to schools about uh, how they should move forward ultimately uh, who makes the decision as far as uh, returning to uh, in-person classes or whether uh, this uh, remote or hybrid uh, kind of uh, activity continues
1: well it's really a combination of things Uh, the governor has uh, put out his Uh, perspectives on when he thought schools should reopen around september uh, 28th that date has now passed and and gone and schools are coming back uh, in person uh, now as we've we've passed that date the department of public health uh, in cooperation with the kentucky department of education has published extensive guidance uh, dozens of guidance documents on how to safely reopen schools there's there's risk in any in-person experience but i think if schools follow the guidance the Department of Public Health put out and that the Kentucky Department of uh, Education put out, they stand a reasonable, uh, reasonably strong chance of being able to reopen schools uh, safely. Again, no guarantees, but, mm-hmm. but it's a good framework that, that uh, the two agencies have put forth. Uh, some of the things in that are uh, mandates or expectations, and some of them are best practices or options. Uh, but I think if schools follow that, they have a reasonable chance of opening safely. But ultimately the decision on how to open, when to open, what the structure looks like, when to close, uh, if you have an outbreak, when to reopen, those are local decisions. And so we wanna provide as much support and information to our local decision makers as we can to help them make good decisions.
0: Commissioner, we do not have the luxury right now of talking about a world without COVID obviously, but there will come a time and uh, you accepted this job uh, knowing uh, what was going on. But as you look forward, uh, you have talked about uh, stability for Kentucky schools. Uh, Do you believe schools to be adequately funded now? And do you have fears about uh, next year when uh, Kentucky could potentially face a significant budget shortfall?
1: I think that's one of the intermediate challenges that we have navigating through COVID in the short term is is where we are right now and everyone's very focused on that but we know that uh, storm clouds are on the horizon when it comes to uh, budgets. Uh, We have for the past several years uh, state funding has not kept up with inflation. Schools have felt the crunch of that uh, and we haven't fully recovered from the cuts of the great recession. So schools are feeling that as well. So the cupboard is already pretty bare. We're going to have to have some really hard conversations about reducing services and shrinking the sizes of school organizations. If the cuts that come forward this uh, spring as expected uh, are, uh, are are significant and even cuts that are coming in this budget year uh, that we're having to absorb. So there are concerns around that, but it's really no one's fault. Uh, no one's to blame that uh, we had an economic downturn related to COVID. We're going to navigate through it. We're going to get through it. But we do, I think, in the long term, need to have a serious conversation around can our schools provide an equitable and quality education given the level of resources that we've provided them? <laughs>
0: You uh, taught, and uh, your background is uh, in uh, social studies and history uh, before you moved into administration. At this moment in time, Mr. Commissioner, with the historic uh, social upheaval that we're seeing and in in strife in the country, what role do Kentucky schools have in uh, in bringing light uh, to the past and helping uh, forge a way forward?
1: Well, I think uh, we have a responsibility in the wake of George Floyd's murder and. Uh, Brianna Taylor's uh, uh, murder and all the things that happened um, uh, this this past spring and even into the summer and and this month uh, schools have a responsibility as does everyone uh, to examine do we have uh, racist practices that are present uh, within our schools and do we have systemic bias that's present within our schools and what can we do to change that and and really we want just as a, a moral obligation for uh, educators we we, need to serve every child, uh, regardless of what uh, their skin color or belief system or background is, we need to make sure that they have access to a quality education. Uh, so so making sure that, that our, our systems and schools are, are free of those practices is an important um it's important work ahead for kentucky schools
0: in these years uh, when you have been out of state uh, kentucky has uh, spent a lot of uh, time trying to uh, figure out how to assess educational achievement figure out uh, maybe the different ways in which uh, students learn Uh, do you think from what you have learned uh, you know in, in your return to the to the commonwealth uh determined that we're doing an adequate job in in figuring out how students are doing along the way and that they are prepared to go on uh, to a a career or college path
1: well we spent an extraordinary amount of effort here in kentucky uh, not just in this state but all across the country on devising systems of measurement um, and testing and accountability Uh, and those were for a good purpose they were intended to track uh, how schools were doing to put pressure on school systems that were underperforming and also to make sure that we were serving all of our kids um, uh, back to that equity conversation. That's a a major underlying value. But I think now after uh, decades of that work being in place, we really have to ask, are we measuring the things that are really important to us that are important for our kids and and the skills that they'll need to be successful in the complicated, globally interconnected, automated, um, information-rich world that's coming forward? Do the tests and measures that we have in place really get at the skills that students are going to need? I think that's an important conversation ahead for Kentucky.
0: Is it a benefit to teachers to have a former teacher now serving as the education commissioner?
1: Well, we'll have to ask uh, uh, them and, and see about that once I have some more days on the job. Uh, but I'm honored to be in the role, uh, come from a family and, and generations of educators in, in Kentucky, humbled and, and excited about about this work. and, and ready stand ready to serve uh, educators and families and kids all across the state
0: when it is possible how important will it be to you to go out and visit uh, some of our schools Uh, you know uh, because there are a myriad of issues uh, including uh, before all of this uh, we were talking a lot about school security and and uh, you know uh, the condition of our buildings and so forth Uh, with about a minute left here uh, do you look forward to the day you can make those visits
1: i'm very excited about that some of that's happening right now Uh, either remotely or we're setting up visits where I can go out and practice social distancing, wear the mask, all of the procedures that are in place for schools that are open right now. So we're getting those meetings going. We're being very careful um, about it. But I do look forward to a time when I'm able to visit schools and talk to students and talk to our, our parents and teachers and administrators to really hear how things are going from their perspective and where they want education to go as a state. I think there's an exciting discussion ahead around what school could be for the Commonwealth.
0: Dr. Jason Glass is Kentucky's Education Commissioner. We thank you very much. Hope you'll uh, uh, visit with us from time to time and keep everybody informed. We appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. And stay with us here on Kentucky Newsmakers. We're coming back. We'll talk about Lexington's new challenge with homelessness. That and more on the way on Kentucky Newsmakers. WELCOME BACK TO KENTUCKY NEWSMAKERS. A JANUARY COUNT SHOWED 689 HOMELESS PEOPLE IN LEXINGTON. THAT WAS AGAIN BACK IN JANUARY. AND TO SAY THE LEAST, A LOT HAS CHANGED SINCE THEN. A WORLDWIDE PANDEMIC HAS LED TO HOUSING INSTABILITY. PEOPLE ARE STRUGGLING TO MAKE RENT IN MANY CASES. and EVEN UNEMPLOYMENT ASSISTANCE HAS NOT HELPED EVERYONE. SO THE FUTURE STILL LOOKS VERY UNCERTAIN AS THE PANDEMIC GOES ON. Polly Ruddick is the director of the City's Office of Homelessness Prevention and Intervention. She said Says there has been an increase in homelessness since this pandemic started and she is joining us now. Polly, it's good to see you. Thanks for talking with us.
2: Thanks for having me. Good morning.
0: How much has the homeless population increased and what seems to be driving it?
2: So we're actually I'll, I'll just correct a little bit. We're yeah. actually not seeing an increase in our overall homeless population. What we are seeing is a where they are located. So if we, because of COVID-19, it's really impacted uh, our capacity in our shelters. So when shelters are running about 50% capacity, following mm-hmm. those CDC guidelines and really trying to social distance and keep people safe, it's not that we've ended homelessness for the, for the other 50%, it's just a shift.
0: Okay, so, so it's, a, it's, it's more of a capacity issue at this point.
2: Yes. Because yeah. of the so, distancing, yeah. Yeah, so we're moving from typically a very um, majority centered, sheltered, homeless population to a now unsheltered population. Um, and that's the Z the typically in the community. We get a lot of phone calls lately about the increase in the homeless population and we're trying to get, not an increase in the homeless population. Um, it's an, in, it's a, just a, kind of displacement of where they're located. i
0: glad you clarified that for us. Uh, you, you know, so, so what you're what we're saying here is then that, that while the, the number of people who uh, have no place to go uh, is somewhat stable, those who are seeking help are uh, not able maybe to find it in some cases, right?
2: So we do have a, we're trying, um, so we do have a street outreach team that um, has about six to eight individuals, depending on the day that do go out onto the streets of Lexington and into encampments and offer services. We do housing assessments every day for those that are unsheltered. So those that are unsheltered are not um, forgotten about. We, we understand kind of their situation and what this has done to them. And so we make every effort to go to where they are. Um, they don't have to come to us. We, you know, we drive around we, it's a, partner, it's a community partner, it's been amazing in this, but um, they go out, they can meet them where they are, they can do housing assessments, they can educate them about resources available, the day centers, food, um, where to take showers, but that has been continued. So whether you're sheltered or unsheltered, we still have um, enough outreach and enough staff capacity mm-hmm.
0: to do yeah. where you offer resources. Finally, we can all feel though the colder weather is coming, uh, no question about that. How does that change things? It has been relatively mild in the uh, uh, the, the summer months and in the early part of fall, but uh, you know as things change, it isn't as easy for people to, to live out there, is it?
2: No, and, and we have been in as a system since about August. Um, You know, we had kind of, you know, get your heads together in the summer, like get prepared for the winter in the summer. So we were very lucky that we were able to receive some stimulus money from the housing and urban development, um, some federal funding to assist our shelters in securing additional capacity um, for the winter. So we started meeting in August and we continue to meet every other week. We'll probably pick those up the month of October just to make sure that we are prepared and plans are in place. Um, To offer every single person that wants it a shelter bed from the cold in the winter. Um, We do that every year. Lexington is extremely lucky to have a caring community of providers that can offer a shelter bed um, to every single person experiencing homelessness. And we are going to continue
0: that issue. What has changed uh, during the the pandemic and and, and what have you learned from the pandemic in terms of uh, of needs uh, right now or the adjustments you're having to make?
2: We learned right off the bat. We have some dedicated staff. When I asked um, probably about three weeks into this covid response, what's the most You know, what are you proudest of? We were all just working 16 hour days and every single organization that I talked to was just amazed at how dedicated their staff were to the individuals without homes and that were in crisis and dealing with trauma. And that has continued just the rise to the challenge, rise to the occasion. They have overcome and adapted and, and hung in there. And yes, we are tired and you know we are ready for this to be over just like the general population, but I cannot praise that frontline staff enough um, it was just amazing to see and um, Lexington Fayette County should be. Beyond proud of what these front lines done. And I think we learned how just truly committed this community was and these providers. TO um, THESE FOLKS in, IN A HOUSING
0: CRISIS. YOU HAVE TOLD US BEFORE THAT THERE, there IS NO TYPICAL uh, HOMELESS PERSON AND uh, THAT HOLDS NATIONWIDE AND, and, and HERE IN LEXINGTON. Uh, EVERYONE IS a, a DIFFERENT AND INDIVIDUAL STORY OUT THERE.
2: YES, SIR. ALWAYS.
0: AND, I MEAN, IT'S A, a WIDE RANGE, RIGHT, AS TO, as to REASONS AND uh, FACTORS THAT HAVE CAUSED SOMEBODY TO BE IN THAT CIRCUMSTANCE?
2: It is, and I and I try to tell people what if, but for, we say but for, but for something or someone you could have lost your home, you could have been on the streets, but for someone giving you uh, rental assistance, but for the boss who let you borrow the car so that you didn't lose your job, but for family who, you know, paid your electric bill or helped you out here and there, you know, it's it's everybody's but for and so when you see someone without a home, you just have to think to yourself, man, I'm lucky because but for what something that could be me and I tell all the time I could have been homeless in my 20s in a heartbeat, but for the support system, but for my family, I wasn't. But if I didn't have that, I don't know what my life would have, you know, projection my life would have taken. So um, I always and we've seen it, especially in this pandemic, as we've gotten to know um, more and more folks, that's been one thing we've learned. Um, since we've done healthy at shelter, where most people are doing healthy at home, we've done healthy at shelter. We've really gotten to know. Um, really intimate details of folks, their lives and their history, and you know it recently um, aired that we had a police officer really get to know somebody and reunite him with his family and and that's an amazing story to know a lot of folks and they're always missing that that but for and that support system and i always tell people we are the support system and we need to be the people that become the but for you know and um, providers that were part of that homeless response to be homeless um and so that's what that's like is when you see someone um not to judge because if you really think you know but for that could be me
0: Polly, it's always good to have you with us and updating us on the the challenges uh, that uh, that are underway out there right now. We know you're working hard to, uh, to try to work on this issue. Appreciate you very much.
2: Thank you. Always good to be here.
0: And stay with us. We'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Tuesday's presidential debate was unlike anything we've ever seen before. But the nominees are looking forward, not back. And they're focusing on some key battleground states. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, explains.
3: Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. No time to rest after Tuesday's debate debacle. No sooner did the 90-minute debate end that both President Trump and Vice President Biden blasted out of there. both-headed back to the all-important campaign trail. Wednesday, President Trump took to the air aboard Air Force One flying to Minnesota. In 2016, the presidential race, there was a squeaker. He lost to Secretary Hillary Clinton by less than two percentage points. And now President Trump thinks Minnesota is up for grabs. He's determined to flip Minnesota red, doubling down on his law-and-order platform to do it. In Minneapolis, the police killing of George Floyd sparked nationwide protests. Most were peaceful. Some erupted into flames and violence. President Trump is focusing on riots and destruction. Critics say he is ignoring cries of police brutality. On to Vice President Biden. He left Cleveland and took to the rails. Amtrak Joe kicking off a train tour in Ohio and Pennsylvania. In 2016, President Trump ran away with the Ohio vote, beating Secretary Clinton by more than eight percentage points. This year could be different. Trump could be on the ropes in Ohio. Vice President Biden has campaigned hard there, and this would be a big win for the vice president. As for Pennsylvania, the Keystone State is crucial for several reasons. Most of all, because of its large number of electoral college votes, 20. Biden was born there in Scranton, and back in 2012, he and President Obama won this all-important swing state. But four years later, 2016, a big surprise. President Trump won Pennsylvania, narrowly beating Secretary Clinton by less than one percentage point. Biden is determined to win back his home state, and right now he's currently pulling ahead, appealing to voters with plans to boost job creation and support the middle class. Critics argue Biden would destroy the economy with COVID-19 lockdowns. Want more full court press? Tune in Sunday. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you.
0: And Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren will be airing this morning at 1130 on WKYT. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you bright and early this week on the morning news. You make it a good week ahead.